Thank you, Paul. Uh, last week, we, we started this new series, and for the next three months, uh, we're going to read the first seven chapters of uh, 1 Corinthians, a letter written to a church in the city. And as a, a city church ourselves, we're, we're hoping to learn some lessons from their story about what it means to be a Christian presence and a Christian witness in an urban context. And so if you have a Bible, could I invite you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It's page 1144 in the Red Pew Bibles. Now, Corinth may have been a first century Mediterranean city, but as we introduced it last Sunday, we recognized that there, were, there are certain similarities uh, to 21st century Belfast that Corinth was a growing, diverse, busy, religious, political, commercial, increasingly immoral metropolis. It had a population in excess of a quarter of a million, and so in relatively, and I know it's relatively big, broad, brushstroke terms, it's a city not unlike our own. And a church had been established in, in Corinth for a few years. Now, in terms of its size... We're not exactly sure how big the church in Corinth was. According to many uh, Bible commentators, they reckon they estimate that there would have been about 150 to 200 believers who would have gathered in various homes across the city. But doing church, or rather being church in that environment, was not easy. There were problems, there were tensions. And so Paul, who had helped to establish the church but had been away from it in Ephesus for about three years, he heard through the grapevine that some of the issues were really becoming huge. And so he felt the need to speak into the situation. And to sum up his big idea, or to emphasize his key message, he urged the people of God to live as the people of God in that city. To embody something different. To model an alternative community and lifestyle. To be distinctive. To be holy. Otherwise, they were going to implode as a Christian presence and witness in that setting. Now, 1 Corinthians is, and this is most people's perception. 1 Corinthians is generally known as it's the book or it's the letter where Paul says or has to say lots of really strong things. That in light of their difficulties, he needs to be really direct. He needs to take this church to task. But as we read and engaged with his opening remarks last Sunday in the first nine verses we highlighted just how affirming he was, how encouraging, how positive that he actually begins this letter. And I know some of you spoke to me afterwards and said you were, you were a bit surprised. I know I, I was as I prepared for it, just really struck by how positive and affirming he starts. And so Paul declares their identity as saints, as those who are sanctified in Christ and you're called to be holy. That, that's who you are. That's your identity. And he then speaks a blessing into their lives. Grace to you. 
peace to you from the Father. Then he expresses his thanks to God for these people. He says, I always thank God for you. And for the tangible evidence of God's amazing grace in your lives. Then he confirms how enriched they are. How incredibly gifted they are. And how God, and again this is incredible when you think of what does come next. How God will keep them strong. Right to the very end. So that one day they'll be blameless. And then to kind of top it all off, he kind of screams, God is faithful. And so it's such an, an uplifting and inspirational and upbeat beginning to this letter. And therefore that creates the framework for what comes next and what needs to be said. You see, before Paul addresses any problems and highlights the mistakes, and yes, there were lots. There were poor choices. There was suspect behavior. There were ungodly attitudes. But before he addresses those, he reminds the church who they are, whose they are, what they are, the resources they have, and the nature and the character of the God they serve. And then it's against that backdrop and against that understanding and that awareness that he says, listen, see with all that, let's live accordingly. Let's embody something different because of who you are, whose you are, what you are, what you've been given, who God is. Let's live as an authentic Christian community in this city. And the thing is, that's still our identity. We Windsor Baptists are saints in this city. Grace and peace to us. We have been enriched. We have been incredibly gifted. And God will continue to work in us and perfect in us what he has started. And one day he will present us blameless. And in all of this, it's not because of us, but it's because he is faithful and so what is true then is true now but we do need to hear what the specific problems were and see what we can learn and discover and glean and avoid so please stand with me for the public reading of God's insightful word and we're starting at verse 10 I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another so that there be no divisions among you and that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you what I mean is this, one of you says, I follow Paul, another, I follow Apollos, another, I follow Cephas, still another, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Were you baptized into the name of Paul? I am thankful that I did not baptize any of you 
except Crispus and Gaius. So no one can say that you were baptized into my name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Grab a seat. Paul's immediate concern, and this Paul here has been really helpfully leading us along this this morning, but the Apostle Paul's immediate and urgent concern for this church in Corinth and for any church, including Windsor Baptist Church, is unity. Because, and and let's be honest, nothing wrecks a church quicker or has, more devast- or has a more devastating impact internally and externally than division and disunity. And tragically and somewhat shockingly, given the teaching of Jesus and the rest of the New Testament, there are far too many examples of divided churches. One too many stories of churches imploding because of quarreling and bickering and people taking sides. Division and disunity is toxic. It consumes people. It puts a massive strain on relationships. It creates friction and sadly, and this is the sobering reality, It distorts and even invalidates the gospel. It certainly destroys or at least severely weakens a church's witness and testimony to the transformational nature of what we claim to believe. Whenever there's disunity and division, all of what we claim to believe just sounds like complete nonsense to many people. Division or disunity has the potential to make a mockery out of the good news of love and grace that we declare are central and we sing about every single week. But if we're divided, if there's division and disunity in the church, in light of all we say we believe and in light of all we sing about, then it just makes a mockery of it all. And so it's no wonder that this subject comes up and is addressed time and time again throughout the New Testament. Paul raises this issue with virtually every single church he writes to which implies that the risk of it actually happening is extremely high. It's a high risk, huge risk. And we all know that it's so true. The question is why? Why does it happen so often? Well, for at least one reason. We're here. I'm part of this. And I don't know about you, but I'm all too aware at times of the tension that exists within me between doing what I know I should do and what is the right thing to do to maintain unity or the alternative about where I make poor choices and opt for a negative attitude or to say unhelpful words that damages unity. 
And, and I live with that tension. And I don't know if that connects with anybody else. And to kind of join the dots and, and link this to what we're looking at together on Sunday evenings, the reason for this tension within me is partly down to the internal conflict that rages within me and rages within you if you are a Christian. This internal conflict that rages between the sinful nature, the flesh, which still tries to mess with every Christian's life. The tension between that and the spirit, who now indwells every Christian, trying to make them more and more like Jesus. Now the acts of the sinful nature are, as Galatians 5.20 makes clear, pretty awful. Two of them, and I read this last Sunday night, two of them are dissension and division. Whereas the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, and gentleness, to just name three of the segments. We are a war zone. The theater of conflict is your heart and mine, and therefore we desperately need to, as Paul says, live by the Spirit and keep in step with the Spirit Otherwise, those acts of the sinful nature will still come spilling out of your life. And when those things come spilling out of your life, they will have a profound impact on unity. And so that's why the challenge kind of like between morning and evening hopefully connects. But back to Corinth, where this issue is top of Paul's list of concerns. It's the very first issue he raises after all those affirming positive encouraging words and the fact is that almost everything else that he goes on to talk about in the rest of this letter flows out often as affected by this one because whenever there is division whenever there is unresolved tension it colors and discolors so many other things how people relate how they worship together the use of the gifts all of that All of that is going to encounter problems if people are not united. Now, before we concentrate on Paul's initial response, let's look at how he heard about these pressing problems. According to verse 11, Paul received the report from what was going on and going wrong and about how the Christians at Corinth were quarreling with each other. He heard it from Chloe's people. Now, it would be easy to kind of skip that detail and immediately move on to look at the reasons for all the quarreling. But I think there's a really important lesson here to learn an issue at stake. Someone in this local church knew there was a problem and was prepared to do something about it. The tension and the disunity was affecting everyone, but rather than turn a blind eye, rather than do nothing, rather than hope, well, look, someone will sort it out someday, somehow, Here is a lady who decides she's going to take the initiative. She's going to get proactive. She's not willing to let this slide. She's not willing to let this go unchallenged. And so Chloe sends her people. 
members of her household, which would have cost her a few quid. She sends them to Ephesus to tell Paul there's a problem back here in the church at Corinth. People are quarreling. Here was someone who sensed, this, this isn't right. This isn't healthy. This needs attention. And so she acted. And she did what she thought was the right thing to do, what she thought was the best thing to do. And therefore, I want to suggest that Chloe is one of those unsung heroes of the Christian faith. Because apart from this one verse, one verse in the whole of Scripture, there's no other reference to her in the New Testament. None at all. No idea anything else about her. I'm not sure how many people here this morning would say, yeah, I've heard of Chloe in the New Testament. Yet, if it hadn't been for her and her concern and her contribution, then who knows what would have happened or not happened to the church in Corinth. Chloe cared because unity mattered. Or she knew unity mattered. Or at the very least, she knew that this fighting and bickering amongst Christians at Corinth was wrong and it needed to be addressed, it needed to be confronted or else there's going to be lasting damage here. And as I thought about that during the week, I felt it was really important to draw attention to Chloe's role in this story. And I want to affirm and thank God for her input and her example. Because whenever there are rising tensions, whenever issues come to the surface, whenever divisions begin happening or there are early signs of it, unless someone or some people care enough to do something about it, take the initiative and seek help, do you know what will happen? It festers. And it grows. And it intensifies. And it begins to dismantle churches and their witness. And I know lots of us have seen it. Or are seeing it. And Paul was able to speak into this situation because Chloe drew his attention to it. So now I know some people may have thought, you know, she's a complete telltale. Whistleblower. But you know somehow any one of us handles and reacts to quarreling and negativity and divisive conversations amongst Christians is incredibly important. Because you can either fuel them or you can ignore them or you can do something positive in order to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That's all our choice. It's all our choice. Thank God for Chloe of Corinth. May every church have a whole bunch of Chloe's. Back to Paul's immediate reaction. Verse 10. We're not getting very far through this text. But verse 10, the first verse, it, it's kind of crammed with vital information about how Paul speaks into this present problem. To start with, look at this. He appeals to the brothers and sisters in Corinth to agree with each other. I appeal to you, don't be divided. He doesn't command them, although you, you might argue he should. He doesn't tell them off. He doesn't instruct them to be united, although again, you would understand that he did. No, this is a really important phrase. 
I appeal to you. And it's a word that kind of means I warmly encourage you to agree. In other words, Paul does this in such a way that he invites a positive response. He actually encourages his readers to listen rather than react. He draws them in, gets them thinking rather than pushes them away and closes their minds. You see, if you demand or you command unity, it's never going to work. But appealing for it is essential in incredibly ways. But notice how Paul appeals. This isn't just Paul asking them to agree. This isn't just Paul thinking, you know, unity's a good idea. Unity's the right thing to do, even though it is. But to show just how important this issue is, to show how just important this moment actually is, Paul appeals to them in and by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So one of the things that we, we drew attention to last week about the opening nine verses is that Jesus is mentioned in each and every one of them. And I made the point that for any church in any context, urban or rural, Jesus needs to be right at the center. Right at the heart and the core of everything that's said and done. Because if he is, and when he is, everything changes. And so how we relate to one another and what we say about one another must come under the influence of Jesus. Must come under the influence of his teaching. We've just finished months in the Sermon on the Mount listening to the dynamic teaching of Jesus which includes things like how we speak to and about others. It must come under the influence of Jesus, his teaching, and his indwelling spirit. Because if it doesn't, then there's every possibility that this is going to become about me. About what I want. About what I think. About how I feel. About my expectations. My agenda, etc. And whenever it becomes about me and not about Jesus, then that's only ever going to lead to one thing within a community. Tension. Division. Breakdown. Friction. Paul appeals to the quarreling Christians in and by the name of of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's all about Jesus. See, whenever there is disunity, yes, relationships between people are put under strain. Relationships between people suffer when there's disunity. But far more tragically, whenever Christians are at loggerheads or are falling out or are divided, it's the gospel that suffers. The good news of Jesus is no longer taken seriously. It's no longer given the time of day. And I can totally understand that. Some of you know, I, uh, I'm going to try not to be too personal about this, but, but some of you know that uh, I 
attempt to play football for Balnehenge, have done for many years, haven't done all season because I wrecked my knee the first match of the season. It's killing me, but that's a side point. Uh, we'll never forget the first match of the season. Turning up to uh, a changing room in Downpatrick, a bunch of guys in the changing room, and the manager turned round to me, and he referred to a situation that was happening within a local church. And he just said to me, so Dave, that's Christians for you. That's Christianity for you. People divided. People not being able to get on. People at loggerheads. And do you know something? Just, I don't want anything to do with that. And as I, I stood there, <laughs> in front of a bunch of guys, I, I just all I could say is, you're absolutely right. I don't want anything to do with that either. It's not just relationships within a church that suffers. It's the gospel, the good news of Jesus that suffers. It's not only our reputation as a church in the city that's at stake. It's Christ's reputation. It's Christ's reputation. But let's look at what Paul actually appeals for. We're still in verse 10. He appeals that, one, they would live in harmony. Secondly, that there be no divisions. And then thirdly, that they would be of one mind. The same mind. Now, there's a real danger that after an initial reading of that comment, you think, well, is Paul wanting everyone to think the same? And therefore, any difference in any diversity is a bad thing and should be avoided at all costs. Is, is, that, what, is that what Paul's saying here? And yet we know or we sense or we hope that that can't be the case. And so we have heard and we value phrases like unity in diversity. Or that when it comes to really important issues of Christian faith and discipleship, we're probably all familiar with this great quote that's generally attributed to St. Augustine. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. And it's brilliant. It's a great quote. It's definitely worth taking on board, although it does raise the issue of what is essential and what isn't, but let's not go there today. Uh, but in teasing out the meaning of this one mind that, that Paul appeals to the Christians in Corinth to possess, I think it's really important and it's really necessary to explore and expand our understanding of it by looking at another occasion whenever Paul uses it or whenever he speaks into a similar situation and uses similar language. And in another one of his letters, and I know some of you are already there and you're thinking, Paul, Paul does use very similar language. And it's in Philippians. And in chapter 2, we come across these couple of verses. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, here's what Paul prays, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and in one mind. Okay, so, so there, there it is again. Paul's prayer, Paul's plea to a bunch of Christians, be of one mind, be of the same mind. And then in that particular letter in verse 5, he goes on to say this, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. 
And then he goes on to describe the mind of Christ. He says, listen, here's what your attitude should be like. Here's what the mind of Christ is like. Though he was God, he didn't think equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took on the humble position of a slave, was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. That, if you like, is the one mind, the same mind that Paul appeals for them to possess. A Christ-like mind soaked in humility. A mind that puts other people first. A mind that lays down your rights and your privileges and your preferences. A mind that takes others into consideration and is even willing to suffer for the greater good. That's the one mind Paul's talking about. And it's that mind of Christ that is such a unifying factor in any local congregation. And so Paul longs for the Christians in Philippi to possess it and he longs for the Christians in Corinth to possess it. I appeal to you in the name of Jesus May there be no divisions among you. May you live in harmony. May you have this one mind. Not all think the same. You're all different. You're all great. Let's celebrate our differences and our diversity. Let's all have the mind of Christ. Humility. Consider others better than yourself. Put others first. Lay down your rights and your privileges and your preferences. And for us here in this city, at this time, remains critical. And so for Christ's sake, and I use that phrase in its proper sense, for the sake of Christ and his gospel, may we pursue unity at all costs. Live in harmony. Avoid divisions. Avoid anything that would rip the fabric of this community apart and be united in the same mind. We're nearly done. Just done one verse and a wee bit of the second one. And although we're nearly done, I'm aware, and and some of you may take me up on this afterwards, and, and, and that's good. That's okay. I'm aware I haven't really mentioned, never mind dealt with the reasons for their quarreling, for their disunity. But you know something? In some ways, it doesn't matter. Unity does. In fact, or the fact that they're falling out and they're at odds with each other and not united, that's the distressing thing. What's happening is far more disturbing than why it's happening. Now, I'm not suggesting the why doesn't need attention, and Paul does go on to address it here. But for me, for us, it's the priority and importance of unity that I want us to get and grasp and value this morning. So that whatever the issues are, and they will come, they will come. But whatever happens, unity will be our prime concern. You see, if unity is our primary concern, then no matter what arises, No matter what arises, no matter what differences we may have, we'll be able to talk about them. 
we'll be able to stick together and we'll be able to actually embody something different by way of living that proves we are an authentic Christian community. If unity is our primary concern and an answer, and we, in a sense, answer the prayer of Jesus, and I haven't even referred to that, but Paul did this morning from John 17. I pray that they may be one. If that is our primary concern, then whatever else happens, we'll be able to sort it. We'll be able to deal with it. We'll be able to address it. And so for each of us here this morning, the kind of personal question for reflection, I think is relatively clear, and it's this. Am I saying or doing anything to threaten the unity in this place? And if there's any division, and if there is any wrong attitude, what am I doing to address it? Or who am I turning to to seek help? God's word appeals to us in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. That all of us agree there be no divisions among us. Because do you know something? Our future as a church in this city may depend on it.